Every year, our church hosts a pastor's conference for the Calvary Chapel churches in the Deep South. Pastors make the pilgrimage with their leaders. It's a fun time. It gives us all an opportunity to catch up and to brief one another on what God is doing in our area, ask some questions perhaps, listen to encouraging Bible teaching, and of course, eat lots of barbecue. Our conference is a vital time for the churches. And in chapter 15, we follow Paul to a pastor's conference. Understand, Acts 15 opens 20 years after the day of Pentecost. You remember, in the upper room, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on his disciples, it was like a rock splashing into a lake. Ripples of Christian faith went out in all directions. The gospel spread to Judea, into Samaria, to North Africa, to Damascus. Then the breakthrough occurred. Gentiles, that is, people other than Jews, came into God's family in a rush. In Caesarea, God saved a Roman soldier in his household. All full-blooded Gentiles. Soon a church was established in Antioch that targeted Gentiles as candidates for the gospel. In Acts 13 and 14, the church in Antioch sends out Paul and Barnabas on a mission to reach Gentiles. And that brings us to Acts chapter 15. Well, certain men came down from Judea, that is to the church at Antioch, and they taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, when you think of villains, lots of words come to mind, don't they? Nazis, Al-Qaeda, Mafia. Hell's angels. But add another name to that list. Judaizers. These were theological thugs. These were the people who came to Antioch from Jerusalem. The Judaizers would pick on believers, particularly Gentile believers, and rob them of their faith and joy. They were the bullies on the block. When Philip brought the gospel to the Samaritans, I'm sure there were Jews who raised an eyebrow. The Samaritans? When Peter preached to the Romans at centurion Cornelius' house, I'm sure some Orthodox Jews began to talk. But when Paul and Barnabas traveled to Galatia and deliberately targeted the Gentiles for salvation, the Jewish legalists went ballistic. The Hebrews had spent 1,500 years trying to keep the law of Moses And now how dare Paul offer salvation to the Gentiles by faith alone? You see, these Judaizers, they were party poopers. Where was the blood? Where was the sweat? Where was the tears? How could faith in Jesus accomplish what rigorous legalism had failed to do? These Judaizers wanted to sentence the Gentiles to the same hard labor that they had served. They wanted to add some elbow grease to the blood of Jesus. And these prideful Jews had come to Antioch to correct Paul. They put more confidence in the blood of goats than in the blood of Christ. They hoped in their own righteousness, not Christ's righteousness. They relied on their own good works rather than in God's grace. You see, these Judaizers, their big problem was that they scoffed at the all-sufficiency of Jesus. 
You see, they pushed a Christ plus theology. Oh, it's okay if you put your faith in Jesus as long as you add elements to the Jewish law. It was Christ plus Sabbath worship, kosher laws, sacrifices, and above all, circumcision. Circumcision was the insignia of Judaism. It was the logo of legalism. The Judaizers wanted to see the Gentile converts go under the knife. How could you be saved if you neglected such an important Jewish tradition? But Paul fought back, and we all should be thankful. He resisted the arguments of legalism. This was a vital issue to Paul. He addresses it in verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. It's interesting. Luke skips over in one sentence what Paul takes almost a whole chapter in Galatians to describe. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul remembers the incident. He remembers the moment. He says, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. When these legalists arrived in Antioch, even Peter was intimidated. Earlier in Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter had been schooled in grace there in Joppa and then in Cornelius' house. But in Antioch, he preferred his Jewish visitors and treated his Gentile brothers and sisters as second-class Christians. And Paul wasn't afraid to go toe-to-toe with old Pentecost Pete. He rebuked his brother and even his elder with the truth of God's grace. The gospel is grace for every race. Jews and Gentiles are to be saved one way, by faith in Jesus Christ. God's righteousness comes from apart, apart from the law Paul stood up for the Gentiles that Jesus died to save. He won the argument in Antioch, but the Judaizers, they didn't drop it. They wanted to move the confrontation to their own turf, to Jerusalem. And so, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused joy, great joy, to all the brethren. Isn't that wonderful? They caused great joy wherever they went. It's been said, a person who lives out the grace of God brings joy wherever he or she goes. A legalist brings joy whenever he or she goes. And in verse 4, they finally arrive in Jerusalem. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. And some, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And here was the debate in a nutshell. Did a Gentile have to become a Jew before he could be saved? In his letter to the Galatians, Paul said that not only did he and Barnabas go to Jerusalem, but they brought a convert an uncircumcised Gentile, a man named Titus. And the Judaizers were outraged. They tried to put Titus under the knife. Paul refused. He insisted 
that circumcision just won't cut it if you're trying to gain the favor of God. It's faith in Christ alone. Verse 6, now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And this was the very first church council. Over the centuries, on many occasions, the leaders of Christianity have gathered together to discuss and to settle disputes and to hammer out sound doctrine. In the first 700 years of the Christian church, there were eight major church councils. Perhaps the most strategic was in 325 A.D. in the ancient city of Nicaea there in Turkey. There the church put down the Arian heresy and nailed down the dual nature of Jesus Christ, that he is fully God and he is fully man. But the first council in Jerusalem was also crucial. If the requirements of salvation hadn't been clarified, there might, not be a, there might have never been a need for future councils. For if the Judaizers had prevailed, Christianity would have been reduced to a Jewish sect. And the spread of the gospel stunted among the Gentiles. That means this was a vital moment. So, when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And of course he's referring to an experience that had happened now 10 years ago, back in Acts chapter 10. The Holy Spirit had fell on the household of Cornelius before Peter had finished his sermon. Without clipping a single circumcision, God had saved the Gentiles. So God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. In other words, how do you argue with God? God is the one who validated their faith. He's the one who poured out his spirit upon them, and he, and he did so because of their faith. God required no more of the Gentiles than he had of the Jews on the day of Pentecost. God purified their hearts and he poured out his spirit on them for no other reason than faith. It was all about Jesus. Here were Gentiles. Understand, these were, gen these were raw Gentiles. I mean, these people went to movies on Friday night and football games on the Sabbath. And they smoked cigars and chewed tobacco and ate pork barbecue and listened to rock and roll and wore shorts to church. I, I mean, these people were raw Gentiles. They were completely ignorant of Jewish customs. In fact, they thought Moses was a retired basketball player. They hadn't kept the law a single day in their lives. Yet God had accepted them and forgiven them and sealed them and filled them by faith. Peter says in verse 10, now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? The Jews had failed completely to keep the law. They had tried, but the law was too comprehensive. Certain standards slipped through the cracks. The Hebrews had worked hard to be good, but they had never been good enough. Despite all their well-meaning efforts, Jews were sinners just like the Gentiles. Oh, they were religious sinners. They were well-groomed sinners. 
They were more sanitary sinners. They were healthier sinners, but they were sinners nonetheless. All their legalism had ever accomplished was just to make them proud and self-righteous. Judaism was a treadmill, always doing but going nowhere. So why expect Gentiles to keep a standard that had eluded Jews? Peter confesses, but we, that is the Jews, believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter states neither Jews or Gentiles are made right with God by their own works. We all approach God the same way, by faith through grace. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. They discussed the results of their recent trip into Cyprus and Galatia. You remember God blinded the sorcerer. He healed a lame man. God had worked miracles in the midst of the Gentiles. It was further proof of his acceptance of them just as he had accepted the Jews. Verse 13, and after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. James had some clout. Understand, James was the brother of our Lord Jesus. He was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. And it's interesting, John 7 verse 5 tells us that James didn't even believe in the deity of Jesus until he had been resurrected. It was afterwards that James understood who his brother really was and put his faith in Jesus and bowed to him as Lord and God. And as a result, James quickly rose to prominence in the Jerusalem church. As a matter of fact, James had several nicknames that characterized his nature, his character. He was called the just due to his impeccable, uh, his impeccable character, his integrity. He was also called old camel knees because his knees were so callous from the much time that he had spent in prayer. And yet it's interesting in Galatians chapter, one, chapter 2 verse 12, when Paul mentions the Judaizers who had come to Antioch, Notice he calls them, certain men came from James. Now here we learn that James believed in salvation by faith through grace. But from the letter he wrote bearing his name, we know that James had strong convictions on the significance of good works. You've read the letter to James. He puts a lot of emphasis on not just what we believe but what we do. For James, we're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It'll always be accompanied by works. Real faith leaves behind tracks, or it leaves behind evidence, a good and godly life. Apparently, though, the Judaizers had misrepresented James while claiming to represent him. This was one of the reasons, I think, James spoke up at the Council of Jerusalem. He wanted to set the record straight. He stood with Paul and Peter in their defense of the gospel. And it always helps to recall Acts chapter 15 when you study the book of James. It gives you some context on what James really believed. James continues his speech in verse 14. He says, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And now he quotes Amos chapter 9, verse 11. He says, After this, 
I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. James quotes a verse that speaks of the end times. It won't be fulfilled until Jesus returns. But the Old Testament predicted that Messiah will sit on the throne. He'll sit on the throne of his father David. The Gentile nations will then flock to Jerusalem to seek the Lord. James adds his conclusion in verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. James is saying that God's plan had always included the Gentiles. God's plan will will always include the Gentiles. For when Jesus returns, Gentiles will flock to Jerusalem to seek the Lord. You know, it's interesting. James turns to the Old Testament here to support the New Testament. And there are pastors today who are teaching that the Old Testament is irrelevant to Christianity. It's outdated. It hinders the spread of the gospel. James thought just the opposite. He saw the Old Testament as crucial validation of the gospel. Here's James's point. The Scripture teaches that God's love for the Gentiles has always been there and always will be there. That He desires for all men to be saved. What was happening at the time in the church among the Gentiles was in harmony with God's eternal plan. You know, Peter had recalled God's work in the past. Paul is recounting his work in the present. James now speaks of God's work in the future. When God's word and God's work lines up, when the past and present and future all align, I think you can be sure that you're witnessing the hand of the Lord. And it always and always will include the Gentiles. In other words, what bothered the Judaizers was no bother to God. Now, it's interesting. Peter and Paul wanted to shut the mouths of the Judaizers. But James hoped to open their eyes. James wasn't trying to win an argument as much as it was to win a brother. And this is the motivation behind what happens next. Yes, we're reconciled to God by faith. But the gospel also seeks to reconcile us to our fellow man. Jews and Gentiles should be one in Christ. James empathized with the Jews. He had been one himself. And he empathized with their loyalty to the law. He refers to the law ten times in his letter, if you go back and read the book of James. He knew how difficult it was for an Orthodox Jew to transition from legalism to a life governed by grace. Remember, this was before the book of Romans. This was before Paul had written Galatians. This was before the book of Hebrews. Relating to God by grace was brand new to these Jewish believers. It was clear to James and to the council of Jerusalem that God was forging a new direction. But James wanted to take his Jewish brethren with him rather than leave them behind. And so he makes a suggestion. Verse 19. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. He agrees with Paul and Peter. It's by grace through faith and faith alone. 
but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. James wanted to ease the Jews into grace. He insists that the Gentiles maintain their freedom from the law, but they shouldn't offend their Jewish brothers unnecessarily. And so he offers a suggestion. Why can't the Gentiles limit their freedom until the Jews can catch up? Dwight Eisenhower once referred to the art of compromise as, I quote, the ability to employ all of the usable surface. The ability to employ all of the usable surface. He said the extremes, right or left, are in the gutters. See, if James had sided with legalism without seeing the Gentile perspective, he would have been in the right-hand gutter. If he'd sided with the Gentiles without any sensitivity to the Jews and where they were coming from, he'd have been in the left-hand gutter. Instead, Jews use, James uses all the available space. He incorporates truth and love for both groups. He finds usable surface where he can both support the Gentiles and encourage the Jews. And so, he says to them, the Mosaic Law, it contains 613 laws. I'm whittling it down for you to four prohibitions that you need to continue to keep. These four things are particularly important to Jews. Meat sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality, meat not properly prepared, and drinking blood. It's interesting, later in the New Testament, once the Jews had an opportunity to grow in grace, Paul will even remove these last four sanctions. Of course, sexual immorality is never permissible, not because of law, but because it violates love. And yet, James has a good suggestion here. He says, we're eliminating the law, and yet for the sake of our Jewish brothers, their sensitivities, we're going to maintain four prohibitions that are going to keep us from offending them and sidetracking their faith. I think it's a beautiful thing he does. Verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And here's a, a, an irony that you don't recognize unless you know the Greek language. The name Barsabbas, it means son of the Sabbath. And so the son of the Sabbath goes with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch to free the Gentiles from having to obey the Sabbath laws. How about that? And they took with them a letter, verse 23. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. And how sweet the sound of that, of Jews calling Gentiles brethren. You see, the gospel can be a bridge that brings the closes down the steepest divide and brings the most diverse people together. He says, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, these Judaizers, saying you must be circumcised to keep the law, 
to whom we gave no such command. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. And here's the verdict that they had reached. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. These words were the official document that resulted from the first church council, the Council of Jerusalem. These leaders in Jerusalem recognize that in Christ, God frees us from the demands of the law. But by showing some sensitivity, they love their Jewish brothers. And they hope to bring their Jewish brothers along with the Gentiles into the liberty paid for by Jesus Christ. Once there was a millionaire, he was explaining his financial success to a young protege. He said, son, I started out by buying an apple with a nickel. I took that apple home, and I polished, and I shined that apple until it was brilliant red. The next day, I sold that apple for a dime. I took that dime, and I bought me two apples. I shined them and polished them, and I sold those two apples for 20 cents. I took that 20 cents, and I bought myself four apples. I turned that four, those four apples into eight, and then those eight into 16, and then those 16 into 32, or $3.20. And at that point, my father-in-law died and left me $10 million. <laughs> and as a child of God, this is your story. You've been blessed with tremendous spiritual treasure, but your windfall had nothing to do with your hard work and your cleverness, your polishing and your shining. We're rich because somebody died and left it all to us. Jesus paid for incredible mercies. And as the Gentiles learned and as the church confirmed, we receive it all by faith. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Antioch must have been a cool church. It was a grace place for sure. And Silas just wanted to hang out there for a while. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. And so Paul thinks that it's time for a second missionary journey. He wants to set out again with Barnabas, but Barnabas wants to take his nephew Mark. The Greek word translated determined means to keep on insisting. Barnabas must have been adamant 
Mark's present presence on their second trip was a non-negotiable for Barnabas. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You remember when they left Cyprus and sailed to the Turkish coast, Mark bailed. He proved chicken to go to Turkey. Now Uncle Barnabas wants to console the young nephew by giving him a second chance. Paul, on the other hand, sees this work as too vital to take a chance on a boy who had proven he wasn't up to the challenge. When you're in a battle, man, you've you got to be able to trust the men in your platoon. Paul had lost confidence in John Mark. Well, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and we, oh, we gasp. These men are apostles. They're founders. And yet they've argued so violently they split ranks. My, oh, my. It occurred even in the early church. Surprise, surprise. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Here are two men of great spiritual stature. As a matter of fact, they have just resolved a major schism in the church at large. They've just averted a colossal bust-up between Jews and Gentiles. But just days later, they get so mad at each other that they decide they can no longer work together and they part company. It proves that even apostles are subject to disagreements and to friction. Mark may have been a chicken, but both Paul and Barnabas were turkeys. They should have gotten along, but they didn't. And yet here's an amazing truth. God still used them both. Commentator Warren Wiersbe states the obvious. He says, if God had to depend on perfect people to accomplish his work, he would never, ever get anything done. God actually used their obstinacy for his glory. Now, instead of one team doing missions among Gentiles, now there are two. The division doubled their efforts. It's amazing that years later, Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, and he says to him, Hey, would you get Mark and bring him with you? For he is useful to me for ministry. Isn't that beautiful? Apparently, somewhere along the line, Paul's attitude toward Mark changed. And it's okay to have strong opinions just as long as you too can change. When you can show grace to others. When you can see another man's progress or another gal's, the changes she's made. You can have strong opinions as long as you're willing to let people change and grow and adapt with them and change with them. Perhaps his time with Barnabas had helped him grow. Through Acts, though Acts tracks only Paul and, Barn- Paul and Silas, I'm sorry, it seemed that God blessed both groups. He certainly continued to bless Paul in chapter 16, verse 1. Then he came to Derby and Lystra. On Paul's first missionary journey, remember he had sailed to Galatia. This time he and Silas come overland to these cities, Derby and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, 
the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. The woman's name was Eunice, and her mother was named Lois. These two ladies helped nurture the growing faith of a young boy named Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 describes the impact that Paul had on this young man in Lystra. Paul wrote, You have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Lystra. Apparently, while Paul had been in Lystra, he had taken Timothy under his wing, and it taught him much. You know, it's interesting, six times in the New Testament, Paul calls Timothy, my son in the faith. I believe every Christian should be a Paul and a Timothy. Like Timothy, you need to be a mentor. I'm sorry, like Timothy, you need somebody in your life who can mentor you. You need to be mentored by an older, wiser elder. And like Paul... We need to take a younger Timothy under our wing and invest in their life. The question becomes, who is your Paul? And who is your Timothy? There should be both a Paul and a Timothy in all of our lives. Verse 2 continues to speak of Timothy. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him. Because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, wait just a minute, Paul. Paul just fought tooth and nail back in Jerusalem to keep the Gentiles from having to be circumcised. Why is he clipping Timothy? You remember Paul's strategy. Whenever he entered a city, he went first to the local Jewish synagogue, and then he went to the Gentiles. That meant that if Timothy wasn't circumcised, he wouldn't be able to accompany Paul into the synagogue. Understand, this had nothing to do with righteousness. This had to do with effectiveness for the gospel. Often in ministry, we have to forego a freedom for love's sake to keep our brother from stumbling. We don't want others to to stumble at our freedoms and our liberties. As a Christian, I'm free to smoke a big old fat cigar while I teach the Bible. But it would probably be a little bit awkward for most folks. (sighs) Thus, I'm happy to forego my liberty. This is the maturity needed in a leader. He or she is willing to put their own freedoms on the shelf in order to spread the gospel and bless the church. And this is what Paul asked Timothy to do. Verse 4. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. They passed on that letter written by the Jerusalem council. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. And when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit did not permit them. And this is such an illustrative segment of the Scriptures. Jesus said, go into all the world. But the Holy Spirit tells us where in the world to go. Paul is traveling westward. 
He turns south toward Asia. And guess what? The Holy Spirit says, no, don't go. Well, then he turns north to Bithynia. And again, the Spirit says, no. And we need to be as quick to obey the no's as we are the go's. When the Holy Spirit puts a check in our heart, it's best to wait. It's best to move in another direction if necessary. God sometimes says yes, but he sometimes says no. Don't knock on a door that God's Spirit is closed. Now, how did the Holy Spirit speak to Paul? We're not sure. Some Bible teachers believe that it was through his thorn in the flesh. You remember his physical infirmity that we've talked about. An eye disease or migraines flared up and pushed him further, further west into drier climate. And at times, the Spirit does lead us and guide us through an illness. I remember after high school, I wanted to play college basketball. But the summer after my senior year, I got mononucleosis. It sapped me of my strength and ended my career right then and there. At the time, it was a bummer, but now I thank God for redirecting my life. Just think, if that illness hadn't occurred in my life, I probably would have gone on to stardom and end up being an NBA superstar by now instead of your pastor. And in retrospect, I'd much rather be your pastor. So praise the Lord for illness. Back to Paul, verse 8. So passing by Mycia, they came down to Troas. Ancient Troy was near the Aegean Sea was south of the Dardanelles Strait. If you were traveling westward, Troas would have been the last stop before crossing over onto the continent of Europe. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia was the region west of the Dardanelles over in Europe, It included the cities of Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica. Verse 10. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Realize when Paul obeys this vision, for the first time in history, God's grace comes to Europe. And don't overlook the vital lesson here. God doesn't close one door that he doesn't open another door. We may have to wait. We may have to be open to change. But God is always faithful to lead us. Notice also the change of pronoun in verse 10. Suddenly, Luke starts writing in the first person. He says, immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia. Apparently, Dr. Luke joins Paul in Troas. Could be he, treated, he was there to treat Paul's illness. That could have been the reason he, he accompanied him. But for whatever the reason, he set sail with Paul and his pals to Macedonia. In fact, it's interesting. There are a lot of Bible students who believe that Luke was the man from Macedonia in Paul's vision. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, And the next day came to Neapolis, which was about 150 miles northwest of Troas. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, 
We were staying in that city for some days. Philippi was about 10 miles inland from Neapolis. Some folks believe Philippi was Luke's hometown because of the glowing terms he uses here to describe the city. Notice verse 12, he calls it the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. It's a beautiful place. We've been there. We've actually gone to the riverside there in Philippi. It is a wonderful, beautiful place. Apparently, there was no Jewish synagogue in Philippi. That meant that the few Jews who lived there would go to the river to pray. They would read the scriptures on the Sabbath day. Remember, it was a man in Paul's vision. And yet, when he arrives in Macedonia, all he finds is women. You know, the rabbis taught, and I'm sure Paul once believed, that it is better that the words of the Lord be burned than be delivered to a woman. Can you imagine that chauvinistic attitude? And yet as a Christian, all that changed for Paul. Paul put aside his Jewish chauvinism. He realized that in Christ we're all one. And he reaches out to the women here in Philippi. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Who worship God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Lydia was a businesswoman. She was the Mary Kay of Philippi. She was a successful importer of purple cloth. And she now holds the distinction Europe's first Christian convert. Who was that? It was Lydia, the woman in Philippi. And when she and her household were baptized, She begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Now this was a slave girl. She told fortunes and made a fortune for her owners. And yet no one cared about the poor girl trapped and controlled by demons. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. And what this girl was saying about Paul was true. But you need to understand, what minister of the gospel wants publicity from a demoniac? I mean, you don't want a demon-possessed girl walking around behind you, you know, advertising for you. I mean, you could say it like this. Her message was right, but the medium was wrong. You get it? The message was right, but the medium was wrong. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. She was instantly delivered. And you'd think her masters would be rejoicing. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. They cared about their gold, not the girl. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. 
And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. You know, it's amazing how intolerant folks, of the, folks are of the gospel when it starts cutting into their profits. Opposition can arise from financial concerns. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. This was justice Singapore style. Think of a caning with bamboo rods. Now remember, Jewish justice was tempered with mercy. Jews were limited in their scourging to 39 lashes, but a Roman beating was brutal. There were no restrictions. The severity of the whipping was left up to the judge or to the executioner. Verse 23 tells us, And when they had laid many stripes on them, we can only imagine how many, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Now having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now prisons at the time were usually in the jailer's basement. We actually went to where they think the jail might have been. These basements were cold, they were dark, they were damp, they were rat infested. And the stocks they were placed in weren't simply to restrict the prisoner, rather they were intended to stretch the victim's legs and arms. It wasn't just for restraint, this was a form of torture. And so imagine Paul and Silas. Their torso is a crisscross of cuts and oozing tissue. Their limbs dislocated, pulled out of their sockets. Their lacerated backs bumping up against the cold dirt wall. The prison rats nibbling at a set of fresh toes. Unrelenting pain is ricocheting throughout their bodies. What if this were you? I'll tell you, if it were me, I'd be having a New Year's Eve-sized pity party. But not Paul and Silas. For verse 25 tells us, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, I'm sure befuddled. Rather than sulk, they sang. Rather than wine, they worshiped. They had been beaten within an inch of their lives, and yet they could still praise God. Isn't that amazing? Spurgeon wrote, any fool can sing in the day. It is easy to sing when you can read the notes by daylight, but the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. God is the reason that Paul sings here. Then suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains was loose. I mean, praise is powerful. As Paul and Silas glorify God and sing his praise, God breaks their chains and sets them free. He shakes the prison until the doors swing open. You know, it's amazing. Paul is so in touch with his spiritual blessings, with his joy in Jesus, that he doesn't get depressed by his physical circumstances. What an example he is to us. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. 
Suicide would have been a kinder fate for a jailer who had let his whole prison population escape. Under that kind of a scenario, the jailer would have been severely punished. But just before he falls on his sword, Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we're all here, all accounted for. Then the jailer called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The earthquake had sure shaken up the sailor, I mean the jailer. And they said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. No mention of the law. No mention of obeying this or obeying that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's by faith and faith alone. Now some people draw the wrong conclusion from this verse and teach what they call a household salvation. That is, that if a man gets saved, then everyone under his authority is also saved. But they need to read verse 31 in context. For verse 32 follows, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. If the jailer's salvation included the rest of his family, then why did Paul make a house call and share the gospel with each family member? A, father's in, a father does influence his family, but faith is always a personal decision. Each person in the family has to make that decision for themselves. Verse 33 tells us, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. And this is such a beautiful picture. The jailer washes and nurses Paul's wounds, and then Paul baptizes the jailer. They both wash each other. Isn't that nice? This jailer shows the mark of true repentance. He's willing to bring healing to the wounds that he had inflicted. And that is always the mark of repentance. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Notice the jailer believed not for his household, but with his household. Everyone in his household believed. They all had faith. And now the family does a great thing. They invite the pastor into their house for a meal. Always a wonderful thing to do. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. It's amazing. Paul and Silas stay in the custody of the jailer until the magistrates, that is the city officials, give permission for their release. And you think their freedom would be a welcome bit of news for Paul, but not so. Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Paul traveled on a Roman passport. He had the documentation to prove that he was a Roman citizen. And as a citizen, 
he was always due a fair trial. But that hadn't happened. These authorities had acted illegally. And now they want to save face. Now that they know that Paul was a Roman citizen, they want to brush the whole thing under the carpet. Paul isn't going to comply. He's not going to make it so easy for them. As a matter of fact, his integrity has now been questioned. He doesn't want people thinking he's guilty of some kind of crime. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. Mistreating a Roman citizen was a crime, and it could bring down the wrath of Rome. Thus, to keep from being reported, these magistrates try to smooth things over with Paul. Paul agrees to leave town, but not before he encourages the church. He was always thinking about the welfare and the care of the churches that he had planted. And so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And When they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. But he didn't forget them, for later he writes them a letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And there we have Acts chapters 15 and 16. 